Hi, and welcome to The Week in Women. I'm your host, Jill Filipovich. The Week in Women is a rundown of the week's most important gender and women's rights stories, followed by a deeper dive into a single issue. This week, we have an interview with Dana Johnson, a researcher who looks at the safety and efficacy of self-managed abortion. She's going to tell us what self-managed abortion is all about, how to do it, how safe it is, and how abortion pills could save lives in post-Roe America. But first, the gender and women's rights headlines this week. There's international shock and outrage this month at the decision of the U.S. Supreme Court to overturn Roe versus Wade. In the wake of the decision, the United Nations has urged the United States to maintain its commitments to gender equality and its treaty obligations. The U.S. is a signatory to CEDAW, the Convention on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, and this latest abortion ruling violates the word and the spirit of that treaty. That said, this was a moment certainly anticipated by the American right. While the U.S. has signed on to CEDAW, we haven't ratified it, which means we're not bound by it. We haven't ratified CEDAW thanks to objections from Republicans, abortion opponents, and other conservatives, precisely because they don't want to see the end of discrimination against women. The U.S. is one of just seven countries worldwide that hasn't ratified CEDAW. Also on that list are countries like Somalia, Sudan, and the Holy See. The U.N. Women's Rights Committee released this statement. The Committee on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, CEDAW, urges the United States of America to adhere to the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women in order to respect, protect, fulfill, and promote the human rights of women and girls. They continued, the committee expresses its solidarity with women and girls in the United States and resolutely urges the United States of America to adhere to the convention. Other international organizations are also speaking out and raising alarm. UNFPA, which is the family planning and reproductive health arm of the United Nations, released a statement reiterating that unsafe abortion remains a leading cause of maternal death worldwide, and that nearly all unsafe abortions occur in countries where the procedure is outlawed or strictly limited. The International Federation of Gynecology and Obstetrics also said in a statement, quote, lack of access to safe abortion care is one of the leading causes of preventable maternal death and disability. Each year, 47,000 women in the world die as a result of unsafe abortion, and an estimated 5 million are hospitalized for the treatment of serious complications, such as bleeding or infections. Dr. Alvaro Bermejo, the Director General of the International Planned Parenthood Federation, told NPR that, we know for a fact that banning abortion does not mean fewer abortions, and that when abortion bans are enacted, women and pregnant people die, as we've seen across the globe, most recently in Poland. We also know that those who cannot access safe abortion care legally, including medical abortion pills, will be forced into unregulated and unsafe methods, potentially resulting in serious harm or even death, and costing lives for decades to come. In Ukraine, an important victory for women's rights this month, as the nation ratifies the Istanbul Convention, a treaty to combat domestic violence and violence against women. 
According to Amnesty International, the Istanbul Convention sets out minimum standards for governments in Europe on prevention, protection, and prosecution of violence against women and domestic violence. Michelle Bachelet, the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, delivered a statement in Geneva at the 50th session of the Human Rights Council, emphasizing the urgent need to fight climate change and to recognize the nexus between climate change and gender-based violence. According to the UN Environmental Program, women make up roughly 80% of people uprooted by climate change. And when women and girls are pushed out of their homes, they face unique threats to their health and their safety. Bachelet told the council, while they sleep, wash, bathe, or dress in emergency shelters, tents, or camps, the risk of sexual violence is a tragic reality of their lives as migrants or refugees. Compounding this is the increased danger of human trafficking and child early enforced marriage, which women and girls on the move endure. We've seen this here in the United States. We know that after Hurricane Katrina, for example, women who were displaced by the storm and living in trailer parks in Mississippi reported rapes that were 54 times the baseline rate for the previous year. In Nepal, women displaced by the earthquake saw a fourfold increase in trafficking. It's clear that climate change too is a feminist issue. In China, the government is offering women perks to have babies, but only if they're married. After decades of forced and coerced abortions and sterilizations, the Chinese government is facing a demographic crisis. And while it reportedly continues to forcibly and coercively sterilize Uyghur women in concentration camps, it is encouraging its general population to reproduce more fruitfully. The Chinese Communist Party is handing out generous aid to married women who have more kids, everything from tax incentives to housing to educational benefits, but single women don't qualify. Single women in China also have no legal protections in the workplace. They can legally be fired simply for getting pregnant. And China's move from forced and coerced abortion in the days of the one-child policy to forced and coerced sterilization of Uyghurs, to now limitations on abortion rights and coercive childbearing, is a very good example of why, no matter what you feel about abortion and abortion rights, you should always remain skeptical of any government that wants to exert control over people's reproductive lives. Some good news out of Sierra Leone, where President Julius Mata Bio's cabinet is backing a bill to roll back the country's colonial-era abortion criminalization law. As it stands, abortion in Sierra Leone is only permitted to save the pregnant woman's life, and as a result, a lot of women lose theirs. And this bill goes beyond abortion, investing more in contraception and in post-abortion care for abortions that have gone wrong as well as a slew of other reproductive health care options. Sierra Leone has astoundingly high rates of teen pregnancy, with roughly 30% of all pregnancies occurring in teenage girls age 15 to 19. Pregnancy is also the leading killer of adolescent girls age 15 to 19 worldwide, which may partly explain why Sierra Leone's maternal mortality rate is the third highest in the world and roughly 1 in 10 women who die while pregnant in Sierra Leone 
die from unsafe abortions. The government is hoping that this liberalized abortion law will help to change course and make sure that more women and girls can live. Josephine Kamara, a Sierra Leonean feminist activist, told The Guardian, This is a landmark moment for girls and women in this country, and it shows that we are now building a world where we can live with the most basic of dignities to make choices over our bodies. As a teenager, I nearly bled to death after a backstreet abortion. Let this generation be the last to experience the horrors of what happens when women's most basic reproductive health needs are pushed underground. Back in the US, according to a new poll by the Associated Press, more Americans now say that abortion and women's rights are major issues for them. According to the AP, 22% of US adults name abortion or women's rights in an open-ended question as one of up to five problems they want the government to work on. A majority of Americans also wanted the Supreme Court to uphold Roe and a majority support abortion rights. Just a tiny minority, one in 10 Americans, believe abortion should be outlawed in all cases. New breastfeeding guidelines issued by the American Academy of Pediatrics have raised the ire of American women. These new guidelines suggest that women breastfeed for two years in a country that offers no paid parental leave, in which millions of workers don't even have access to unpaid leave, and where just last year, Congress failed to pass a bill that would have protected the right of all workers to pump breast milk while on the job. The guidelines also pretty aggressively discourage formula feeding, despite formula being safe and the best option for a great many women and families. As Jessica Gross wrote in her excellent parenting newsletter for the New York Times, the tone of a lot of breastfeeding literature carries an implication that if mothers just had enough education about how to nurse and about the advertised benefits of breastfeeding, more of them would fall in line with their recommendations and would embrace exclusive breastfeeding instead of feeding their babies any formula at all. And I don't doubt that many American moms need more comprehensive information about and support for breastfeeding which they should absolutely have available, free. But in a country where, as of late March, only 23% of civilian workers had access to paid family leave, three months of paid leave is considered generous, and on-site childcare has been described as extremely rare, even for Fortune 100 companies. I don't think a lack of education is the main barrier. It's that, for a lot of moms, exclusive, prolonged breastfeeding is quite difficult to accomplish. The growing criminalization of abortion in America has predictably created a set of dystopian tragedies. One of them is the story of a 10-year-old rape victim in Ohio who was denied an abortion in her own state. Several Republican lawmakers have come out on the record to say that even children, even rape victims, even child rape victims who are not yet teenagers should still be forced by law to carry their pregnancies to term. And I know I'm repeating myself here, but worldwide, pregnancy is the number one killer of girls age 15 to 19. The 10-year-old in this story has reportedly had to travel to Indiana to end her pregnancy. Abortion is still mostly legal in Indiana, 
although conservative lawmakers have signaled that they plan in the next state legislature session to work to criminalize abortion more strictly. And finally, Brittany Griner has pleaded guilty to a drug charge in Russia. Griner stood accused of having trace amounts of hashish oil in a vape cartridge in her luggage. It's a case that is a fairly transparent effort for the Russian government to gain some leverage over the United States. Griner faces up to 10 years in a Russian penal colony, and her family and her supporters are urging the Biden administration to act on her behalf and get her home. And now it's time for the deep dive into one big story. This week's deep dive is into self-managed abortion. Whenever I write about self-managed abortion care, I get a lot of concerned emails and messages essentially asking, is this where we are? Are women again resorting to illegal, back-alley, dangerous abortions? And so I wanted to take some time to clarify what self-managed abortion is, what are the safer ways of doing it, and what the procedure actually entails. Joining me on the show this week is Dana Johnson, an expert in self-managed abortion. Dana is a PhD candidate in public policy and demography and an NICHD pre-doctoral fellow at the University of Texas and a 2021 Emerging Scholar in Family Planning. Prior to graduate school, she was a grassroots organizer for a reproductive rights organization in the upper Midwest. She grew up in Wisconsin, received her BA in sociology and social work from the University of Minnesota, and got her master's in public affairs at the University of Texas. Welcome, Dana. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. So I want to talk today about abortion access in an increasingly legally constrained landscape in the U.S. So to start, can you tell me, our listeners, who you are while you're on the podcast today? I'm an abortion researcher at the University of Texas at Austin and I am a PhD candidate in public policy at UT. Great. And a lot of your work is on self-managed abortion, yeah? Yes, correct. I've been looking at self-managed abortion for about six years. Okay, so what is self-managed abortion? So self-managed abortion is the process of someone self-sourcing something, usually medication, abortion pills, outside of the formal healthcare setting and then using medication abortion pills or other methods to do their own abortion at home outside of the formal healthcare setting. And why might a person choose to self-manage an abortion? So the folks that we have talked to have chosen to look outside the medical system most frequently because they couldn't get to a clinic. They either couldn't afford a clinic, they couldn't travel so far distance, they couldn't wait to get the money together to go to a clinic. But then other people actually really prefer to be in the comfort of their home and just to be able to do it with a cup of tea on their own watching Netflix. In the past few weeks, I've been writing quite a bit about self-managed abortion since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. And I've gotten a lot of honestly pretty horrified messages from folks who seem to be really worried that we're going back to these dark ages of back alley abortions and coat hangers. What's different about self-managed abortion now in 2022 
than it was in the days pre-Roe. I think that there are a couple key differences. We have medication abortion pills now that are safe and effective and people can access through online sources. That's a huge difference. And we also have a lot of scientific advances in pregnancy determination, people having access to pregnancy tests. A lot of studies find that people are incredibly good at self-dating how far along they are in a pregnancy. And we have the internet. We have this explosion of accompaniment models and telemedicine organizations that are helping people through this process of self-managing with pills. And what are medication abortion pills? So there's typically two regimens that people most think of. The first is mifepristone with misoprostol. And that's kind of the most frequent one that people would have if they say went to a Planned Parenthood. And then there's also misoprostol used by itself that is less frequently used in the U.S., but is the most common abortion regimen in places like Latin America. And these pills are varying levels of efficacy and restrictions. And people, depending on where you live now, you're going to have differential access to these medications. Got it. And so let's say a person lives in a state where abortion is either outlawed or highly limited. How might they get their hands on abortion-inducing medications? So Aid Access is an online telemedicine organization that operates out of Austria. And to my knowledge, they're the only online telemedicine organization that's sending by mail mifepristone and misoprostol to people in all 50 states. So that includes these states like Texas and Missouri that have now banned abortion. There are other sources as well. People in particular in states that border Mexico might be going to Mexico and acquiring misoprostol that can be purchased from a pharmacy over the counter. And there's other sources for authentic medication that people can find using Plan C pills. That's a website that actually coalesces all of the information on these online sources for pills and tests the effectiveness, reports how expensive they are and how long it took for them actually to come in the mail. So if a person goes to aidaccess.org and they're trying to get abortion pills, what happens next? They go to the website, what do they do? Yeah, so you go to the website and you do an online consultation, just like if you were doing another kind of telehealth appointment. You would fill out information about your pregnancy history, your gestation, any contraindications that might make you ineligible for medication abortion, and then you fill out information about where you live. And then a physician through Aid Access reviews this consultation, and if everything is set and you're eligible for treatment, they'll send you a follow-up email with instructions on shipping, and then they'll send you a follow-up email after that with instructions on safe self-management. And the Aid Access doctor sit on a help desk that just in real time is talking one-on-one with people as they go through the self-management process. And then when people typically finish taking the pills and they're in recovery, Aid Access follows up to see how it went for you. Did you have any signs of you know, excess bleeding? How are you doing emotionally? And you know, how are you doing? 
Got it. So the pills come right to someone's house. There's uh, some instructions that tell them how many pills to take and in what order and in what time, more or less. Yeah. Yeah. They're really detailed instructions. And a lot of people also find a lot of comfort in reading the firsthand testimonies of people who even access and also the Reddit forum, r slash abortion. A lot of people find information there. And what kind of contraindications might make someone not a good candidate for abortion pills? So aid access would typically ask if you have had any complications with abortion in the past, if you've had any complications with pregnancy, um, if you currently have an IUD, and they want to check in and they can get a full spectrum of your healthcare situation. Because if you're doing aid access, you're not necessarily doing an ultrasound prior you might be. You might be going to a clinic for contact access and getting an ultrasound. But they want to make sure that they have a full picture of what's going on in your life just in case any complications arise. And what about ectopic pregnancies? So a fertilized egg that instead of implanting in the uterus, implants in a fallopian tube and can rupture the fallopian tube and, and cause some pretty significant health problems. Yeah, that's a great question. Ectopic pregnancies... Although rare, about 1.5% of pregnancies, I think might even be less ectopic, they're extremely serious. And aid access has actually found very few incidences of people with ectopic pregnancies, but they are able to get people to treatment really quickly because if people take the medication and they are experiencing the typical steps afterwards, they contact the help desk immediately and the aid access advises folks then to go to an emergency room or a hospital and get checked for an ectopic pregnancy. So if you take abortion-inducing drugs thinking you have a normal pregnancy, it turns out you have an ectopic pregnancy, how might the experience be different that you would know to call the help desk? You would probably not experience the typical bleeding, cramping, and you wouldn't see parts of conception. It wouldn't be a complete abortion. And so aid access is really sensitive to that. And they'll contact people immediately and say, hey, you should go get care because ectopic pregnancies are extremely serious and it's time sensitive. In the US, there's a very strong association with self-managed abortion and unsafe abortion. Can you walk us through what the research says about the safety and efficacy of self-induced abortion using misoprostol alone or mifepristone and misoprostol combined? Yeah. So, so first I want to say is that self-managed abortion using either of these abortion regimens have been found to be really safe and effective. The mifepristone and the misoprostol regimens, so mifepristone is a progesterone blocker. Misoprostol causes the uterus to contract and expel the contents. That dual regimen has been found in aid access in particular to be 96% effective. Now, just using misoprostol alone, people have looked at self-managed abortion in Nigeria and Argentina and have actually found it to be as high as 99% effective just for the misoprostol regimen. We're finding with aid access data that it's in the high 80s of efficacy for just misoprostol alone. But both regimens, we see very few incidents of serious adverse events. And if people experience a serious or adverse event, you know, something like bleeding excessively or 
having a fever, needing IV, antibiotics, they're able to get to a hospital really quickly and then follow up with aid access afterwards. And compared to, say, carrying a pregnancy to term and giving birth, how safe is self-managed abortion? Self-managed abortion is very safe. There is a maternal mortality crisis in this country, and it's been long underreported and underdiscussed. And carrying a pregnancy full term and giving birth can be extremely dangerous. And we know that self-managed abortion using these medications that are really safe, safer than aspirin, safer than a lot of other ways that people might be forced to terminate a pregnancy. And when used with the guidance of either a complement model or aid access physicians, or a doula, people really can get the care they need quickly and accurate information. From what I've read, a person who is self-managing an abortion, using these drugs from a reputable source, the chances that she has a complication so serious that it results in, say, death is infinitesimally small. But complications do arise, and what may come up, and what should a person do if they experience any of those complications? You're correct in that death is very rare. As far as we've seen in aid access data, there hasn't been a known death. But things happen, right? And people need to know, and they need to be prepared. So if you're bleeding through more than two maxi pads every two hours, that's a lot of blood. That's a reason to go seek care. If you have a discharge that is a bad odor or a weird color, that could be a sign of an infection. So you also would need to go seek care. If you're having a fever of say 102 degrees for a long period, if you're having excessive vomiting, those are also signs that you might be experiencing more than just an abortion. You might need to go follow up with the hospital. I know that you can't give people legal advice, and so to be clear, this is not legal advice, but let's say someone has self-managed an abortion in a context in which abortion is largely outlawed. Is there anything that they should consider to say, to not say, if they do seek care at a hospital, having self-managed and worrying about complications? So aid access advises everyone to take the pills by dissolving them under their tongue. And that is because if people insert the pills vaginally, that can be found later by a healthcare worker. And what we've seen in cases like Lysel Herrera in Texas is that she presented at an emergency room and had misoprostol inserted into her vagina. And that is when a healthcare worker then called the police and law enforcement was involved. So aid access always advises people to dissolve them under your tongue. And if you're dissolving the medication under your tongue and you present to a hospital for follow-up care, it looks the exact same as a miscarriage. There's no way knowing that there's anything different than you're receiving just follow-up care for a miscarriage. So if you've taken the pills the way aid access recommends, so not inserting them into the vagina, putting them under your tongue, and you're concerned because let's say you're bleeding through more than two pads an hour, you can go to the hospital and say, I'm having a miscarriage and there's no way that they can figure out that you have self-induced an abortion. Yes, correct. But I do want to stress that we're in a whole new ballgame here, right? Of legal risks and criminalization and the groups of people, people of color, young people, 
these are people that the U.S. government has always criminalized, and they're definitely at increased risk of being criminalized for self-managed abortion. I would imagine that at least some folks who are listening are curious about how they can get involved. How would you recommend anyone reading or listening get involved either with aid access or with any effort to promote and provide safe abortion care to people in need, regardless of the legal status of abortion where they live? We have a public health duty now to make sure that people have safe information on self-managed abortion. I think just talking about it, talking about how there are resources, there are legitimate sources for medication, and that medication should always be in a blister pack. That's really important. There is also something that Aid Access has started, and that's advanced provision of abortion pills. So that is something that you can fill out a consultation form on Aid Access, even if you're not pregnant today, but keep medication abortion pills with you in your medicine cabinet just in case. And that also might come with some increased criminal risks, depending on where you live. But we're at a point now where it's our public health duty to get information on safe abortion out there because it's there. And there's a lot of wonderful research that's been published about it. And people should have access to that. I want people to know these studies are out there. We try to get them to be published open access, and we want people to read that. We want people to have the necessary public health information about what medication abortion pills are. And if people are worried about their rights or possible criminalization or surveillance, if one how has legal resources to help people. And these organizations are set up to let people know what their rights are and to make sure that they're getting the care they need. What have you heard from folks who have self-managed their abortions? What have you heard from them about how they felt about their experiences? Oh, I love this. I love this question. So the research group I'm a part of is called Project Sana. And to date, we've interviewed over 120 people who've self-managed their abortions. And the running thread is that people could not get to the clinic because of abortion restrictions. And we know that's our new normal, right? We know that's been the normal for states for a long time, but people couldn't get to the clinic. But then I also think that every abortion story is as unique as the person who's experiencing it. So we hear from everyone, the same kinds of people who go to the clinic, self-manage, people from all different walks of life and People talk really intimately about their experiences of doing it at home and having the privacy to be in their bathroom, to be able to take care of their kids, be able to have childcare at that time, and really to be in charge of their reproductive autonomy and be able to do this process. Wonderful. Well, Dana, thank you so much. This was super interesting. Thank you for being on the show. I really, really appreciate hearing from you. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. And that's it for the week. As usual, paid subscribers to jill.substack.com get early access to The Week in Women this week and every week. So if you want to hear the show as soon as it's out, head to jill.substack.com and sign up. Thanks for listening, and thanks for staying in the fight. Bye. Bye.